Good morning. Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall be not so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. I'm Pastor Brooks. We'll be bringing you the word this morning as we continue our study in Mark. So, the Gospel of Mark. Jesus comes along the scene in Mark chapter 1, and he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says to repent and believe in the good news. And, and for the first part of Mark, uh, the question on everybody's mind is, who is this guy? Who is this guy? That question is answered in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say the prophet. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and speaks for all of them. He says, well, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And immediately Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that was revealed to you by my father in heaven. So they get it, right? Sort of. Sort of, because immediately Jesus tells them that he has to go to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, where he will be killed, where he will be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And Peter immediately rebukes him and says, may that never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So clearly, they know, but they don't get it. They know, but they don't get it. And so Mark then uh, begins to chronicle, well, what kind of Messiah? Starting about the end of chapter 8, the, sh- the, the, the focus of Mark begins to shift, not to, not to talk about the kingdom of God coming or to answer the question who Jesus is. We know who he is now. We know who he is now. But what kind of Messiah What kind of king is he? And so he begins to teach them and reemphasize the same lesson. The same lesson. And in this morning's text, he's going to give it the third time. So when you see things repeated in scripture, it means that they're important. So the third time, Jesus is going to tell them, guys, I have to go to Jerusalem. I will be arrested. I will be killed and I will rise again on the third day. So he's drilling this down. He's drilling this down. But one of the questions we're going to look at today is something that appears twice in chapter 10. And Jesus asked this question twice to two different people. 
well, actually three different people. John and James, we're going to take a look this morning. And then uh, after Christmas, we're going to come back. He's going to ask this to a blind man named Bartimaeus. And here's the question. What do you want me to do for you? That's significant. It's, it's not coincidence that Mark puts these two stories back to back. And Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? So I want you to just think this morning. Jesus is speaking to you in the scriptures and he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Well, what do you want him to do for you? Don't, don't answer out loud. Just think about it. Think about it. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at, and this, this thermo title is a vision for greatness. The request, the request, what they want. We're looking at James and John and their request. The reason we're going to bear down on, well, what's the motive for them asking? And, and by way of application, what do we want and why do we ask for it? And the third thing we're going to take a look at is Jesus' response to them and then our response to Christ. So open up your Bibles to Mark, Mark chapter 10. We're going to be starting here in verse 32 and let's go to the Lord and ask him to guide our hearts and, and minds. Father, we come to you in humble dependence. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for us. Thank you. as this Christmas season. We celebrate your coming. And Lord, we long for your return. In the meantime, Lord, would you build us up in the faith? Would you strengthen us? Would you teach us from your word? Uh, Spirit, I pray that you would open up minds and hearts that we might be formed in the likeness and image of Christ. And for those who do not yet know you and they have not trusted you as Savior, may today be the day of their salvation. Lord, help me to preach and teach, Lord, that you might be exalted and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first of all, context is important. The context is Jesus, for the third time, for the third time, he tells them, he tells them that we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes and will condemn them to death and deliver them over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. This is the third time that Jesus has told them exactly what's going to go down in Jerusalem. So he is the Christ. He will be killed and he will rise again. Now here's the question that's, that are on the, is in the disciples' minds, or at least it should be, is, okay, okay, he's the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's going to rule and he's going to reign. In fact, last week when we looked at uh, the rich young ruler and that whole story, when, when Jesus told Peter and the rest of the disciples, they said, well, we've given up everything to follow you. And he says, I know, and you will be rewarded in this life and into the age to come. Matthew adds on a little bit more, and Mark leaves this out. But Matthew says, and I tell you the truth, you will sit on 12 thrones and you will rule over Israel. Okay, so that's, that's what they just heard. They just heard victory, you're going to reign, you're going to rule with me. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I got to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. So think this through. You're, you're following him and you're like, what? what? How are we going to rule with him if they're going to crucify him? 
You see the dilemma? So that's the context. That gives us the context for, for how, what they're hearing and what they're experiencing in real time. When you read the scripture, we, have, we see it in hindsight because we can look back. We know the whole story. They don't. They're in the moment. They're in the moment. So that gives us the context. And now you have the requests. The requests. James and John. One of the apologetics for how you know the Bible's true is that the authors insert themselves and they don't try to make themselves look good. They just tell you the what happened. So we're about to read a story which is kind of cringeworthy in terms of the way they frame the question. All right, so here it is. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and says, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay, now let's just, just a show of hands. How many of you feel as if that seems a little presumptuous? Just, we want you to do whatever we ask. Okay, how many of you were here last week? Do you remember how many times Jesus said in John chapter 14 through 17, ask whatever you wish? Did you, did you notice that? There, he hasn't said that to them yet. That comes later in, in the text. But this, is, this follows a pattern of Jesus trying to teach his disciples, this is how I want you to approach the Father. This is how I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to ask for whatever you wish. So at first glance, it seems cringeworthy that they would be that bold and that presumptuous. But then when you think about it, it's like, well, now that's pretty much in keeping with exactly how Jesus says we're supposed to approach him. So it's not as cringeworthy as we might think. Well, sort of, it is. But, But you get the idea that now this Jesus is encouraging this kind of relationship encouraging this kind of relationship. You remember the whole childlike dependence thing last week? What do kids do? They ask all the time for everything. James and John are simply following suit. They're just trying to be, they, they're, they're exhibiting that childlike dependence. And so they, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And, and he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Notice he doesn't slap them down. He doesn't discourage them. He says, well, that's a presumptuous statement. He says, well, no, what do you want me to do for you? He follows up with that. And they say to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. They want to be on his right and they want to be on his left. Okay, now let's bear down and let's, let's, let's examine their motives here. Examine their motives and think about what they've asked and why they're asking. It seems a bit presumptuous. It seems a bit vainglory. It seems a bit ambitious. It doesn't seem Christ-like, but let's, before we cast stones at James and John, let's take a look at some things here. Um, dang it. This is what happens when I don't check whether or not which PowerPoint was loaded. This has all been updated and that's not what I have in my notes. So let's just pretend that's not actually there. And I'm just going to tell you as I go through here. So here we go. Reasons. They're mixed. There's a mixture of good and not so good. First of all, the good is Jesus does encourage them and us to ask for whatever they wish. Ask for whatever they wish, okay? 
That's John 14 through 16. Another good thing. Another good thing is that these two individuals show great faith that Jesus is able to do this. Now, what did Jesus just tell them and the rest of the disciples? What's going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to die. And yet they're saying, hey, can we sit at your right hand and your left when you rule? What does that tell you about their faith? They don't understand, but they do believe that he's going to rule and reign, even though he's told him he's going to die. That shows tremendous faith. Tremendous faith. Third, the request is in line with Jesus' promise. Now, Mark doesn't record this, but Matthew does, that after he told them that they will receive as many sons and daughters and houses and, and, and all of this in this life and the age to come because they've followed him, and he says to them, and you're going to rule on 12 thrones. He just told them. He just told them that they're going to rule on thrones with him. They actually take him at his word. So the request is in line with what he said. They're just asking specifically where they can sit. They know that they're going to rule and reign with Jesus. So they're showing tremendous faith. They just want to sit at the right and the left. So that's the good part. That's the good part about their requests. All right. What's bad is that they've revealed that they've learned nothing about the lessons on greatness, which he gave them a short time earlier, which is recorded in Mark chapter 33, verse 30 through 37. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, they're following along and they're arguing. And when they finally get to their destination, Jesus says, say what you guys were arguing about something. What, what was that? And they get real quiet. And the reason they got quiet is because they were arguing about which of them is going to be the greatest. Which of them is going to have the most status? Which of them is going to be recognized as the most awesome of the awesome apostles? That's what they're arguing about. And Jesus is like, guys, if you want to be great, you have to become like a child. Because there are many who are first who are going to be last, and the last will be first. You have to become a servant. If you want to be great, you have to become like a child. You have to become the servant. And their requests betrays the fact that they, the lesson has not yet sunk in. The lesson has not yet sunk in. Um, so there's some good things about their requests. There's some not so good things about their requests. And what this, what this un, un, unearths is that their motives uh, are mixed. They're mixed. And so are ours. So coming back to the question. Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want him to do? What is it? What do we want Jesus to do? Over the last week and a half, I've had four conversations with four different people, myself being the fifth, because I'm right there in the same boat, with the following. Is it okay to want to be the best at something? Pause for effect. What do you think? Doesn't that sound in opposition to what Jesus said about the key to greatness is becoming the least of these and the servant of all? See, 
When I was competing back in the day, I wanted to be the best wrestler in the country. That means that I wanted to be better than everyone else. Now, there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of things that go into what we desire. Some of you want to be the best at what you do. And the question is, is is that an okay thing to ask God for? It depends on why you're asking. Honestly, it, it re- the, the question is, is why? Why do you want that? Now, Peter, or, or James and John, rather, they want to sit and rule with Jesus. The question is, why do they want that? Well, first of all, it's God's desire for them to want that. He's already told them, you're going to sit on 12 thrones. The, he's already told them that this is the way it's going to be, but they... But their question does betray there's a little bit of selfish ambition or maybe a lot of it. We're not exactly sure. It's both and. They want what God wants, but why do they want it? Our motives are never 100% pure. Even when they're to do the right thing. They're, they, it's, just, it's just the way it is. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, even our tears of repentance are stained with the salt of sin. So the desire to do something noble and and aspiring for greatness, for the glory of God, is always tainted with a little bit of selfish ambition. Or, Or selfish ambition is the primary driver and there's a little bit of desire for God's glory. It's never an either or. It's always a both and. It's just a matter of degrees. So James and John, Jesus does not rebuke them for asking. There's nothing wrong with aspiring for greatness, provided that we understand what greatness actually is. Don't apologize for wanting to excel or wanting to be excellent. Now, if you have to step on the necks of other people to get there, you ought to question whether or not your motives are entirely pure or even have anything which is noble about your ambitions. It it comes back around to, well, what do you mean by greatness? Not exactly sure what we have here. We'll just see what's on the next slide here. Um, So here's the thing. Jesus invites James and John, he invites us into a relationship with him. And here's what he wants. He wants all of you, he wants all of us, including James and John, to come to him and ask for whatever you desire. He wants you to ask. What does James say in chapter 4? You don't have because you, you don't ask. And then sometimes you don't have because you ask with wrong motives for your own selfish desires. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's inviting James and John into a real authentic relationship where they talk about what they want. That's all he wants from you. That's all he wants from us. Everything. Every single aspect of your life, Jesus wants to be a part of. And and here's the thing. I think a lot of times we come to Jesus with the spiritual things. Lord, help me to not be selfish. Well, what are your aspirations as you do your business, as you do your job, as you raise your family? Ask for that. James and John, he doesn't slap them down. What are you asking for that for? No, he, he says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they ask. 
And he responds. He's in a relationship with them. He's in a relationship with us. He wants you to come to him and ask for whatever you desire. Is that not the coolest thing in the world? Well, here's the problem. We know that a lot of what we desire is not what he desires. So there's that. But we should come to him and ask anyway. Why? Because in the process of asking, that relationship is deepened and we allow him to speak into us concerning our desires. That's what a relationship is. He's not a vending machine. Ask whatever you wish and make sure you use the proper change and push F1 so you can get your Snickers bar. That's not how it works. He is the son of the living God who is our heavenly father. And we ask for whatever we wish. And then we allow dad and the son and the Holy Spirit to say, why do you want that? That's not good for you. That's not going to help. If I give you that, it will destroy you. He wants to have those conversations with us. But we cannot have those conversations with him until we come and we do what? Ask. Let him determine whether or not the request is worthy of granting. But engage him in the process. So let's take a look at the response. And we'll fix the PowerPoint for second service. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. You have, and isn't that true? We want what we want, but do we know why we want it? Well, we kind of think we do because it's going to make our lives better. And Jesus is like, you don't have a clue. This isn't a beat down. He's just a factual statement. Guys, you, I love you guys, but you don't really have an understanding of what it is you're asking for. And then he follows that up with a question. So are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which I am able to be baptized? Well, that begs the question, what is the cup and what is the baptism? What did he just tell them and he was on his way to do to Jerusalem? The, the, the cup is persecution. The cup is suffering. You want to be great. Okay, fair enough. Are you willing to pay the price for greatness? Because it's going to involve a road of suffering. For me, it's going to be crucifixion. Are you will- Can you drink that cup? Are you willing to be baptized with that? Are you willing to be plunged into the fire? Can you do that? Oh, yeah. He- Jesus is like, you know, the cup that I drink and the baptism with I'm going to be baptized, you will be baptized. Oh, yeah, you will suffer. You're clueless, though, on the amount of suffering you're going to experience. You want to be great? Are you willing to pay the price? Because to be like Christ means that you must and you will suffer. You will. So a number of years ago, not a number, a few years back when I couldn't walk and I had hurt my back and I was awaiting surgery, I had some very precious people come over and they wanted to pray for me. Um, most of them came to grace, but one of them did not come to grace. And the person that uh, I'm sitting there, I'm lying on my back and, and they're, it's the day before my surgery and, and they're, we're just talking and I'm in, in pain and I'm just looking up at them and we're having this conversation. And so we're waiting for somebody else to arrive that wanted to pray. And, and as we're waiting, just talking about, I said, boy, God has really used this. God has really used this to teach me 
to teach me humility. And I, I began to list off all the things that God was doing through this suffering to, to make me more like Jesus. And, and this particular person, and, and, I, and I quoted, I quoted uh, Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 3 through 5. Here's what Paul says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I quoted Paul in in Romans 5, 3 through 5, and this particular person who does not come to grace, I keep emphasizing that, (laughs) said, I never liked that verse. And, they, and, they, and that, that's all, for me, that's a red flag. Ding! Just, it, just, it just goes up. My antenna is up. I never liked that verse because God gave me the Holy Spirit and the Bible, and I ought not to have to suffer to learn lessons so that I can become like Christ. I mean, think about this. God says, be kind, be loving. Love your neighbor. Be long-suffering. Be all these things. And the implication is that unless I get up on an anvil and God drops the hammer on me, I can't become what God wants me to become unless I suffer. And this person is saying, well, that's a matter of obedience. God says, do it. I ought to be able to do it because I have the Holy Spirit and I have his commands without having to experience the suffering. The fact that I have to experience the suffering means that there's something deficient in me. And since I have the Holy Spirit, there's nothing deficient in me. Therefore, I ought to be able to obey. Now, I'm in pain and I don't want to get into a theological debate. But I decided to anyway. (laughs) To a point. I I didn't make it a debate. I just said, well... Considering Hebrews 5 says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering, I'm going to go with it. I'm not going to be exempt. And they prayed for me and I was grateful. Understand, if you want to be like Christ, you're going to suffer. It's not optional. Jesus Learned obedience through suffering. James and John will learn obedience through suffering. And they will drink that cup. And they will receive that baptism. And they will burn brightly for the glory of God. But they don't have a clue. And neither do I. And neither do you. Jesus says, oh yeah, you will. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It's for those to whom it has been prepared. That's a fascinating statement. Jesus says, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. When you ask in my name. And then they ask and he says, well, that's not my call. It's, here's the thing. It's like Jesus doesn't care what position on the podium you end up. But what he does care about is that you look like him as you do it. And that you live your life with passion and with excellence so that he receives the glory. But as for where you end up, at the right, at the left, or three rows down, 
he's not concerned about. When, when Jesus gave the parable of the talents, he gave to one man one talent and another man uh, two and another man five talents. And after, after the, the master returned and the servants came to him and the one says, see, you have given me five and here's ten. Here's ten. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then to the one that received two, he says, you gave me two and, and I, here's four. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And to the one that he gave one talent to, he says, well, what did you have? And so he says, well, master, because I believe you to be a hard man, I buried my talent. I didn't want to lose it. So here's the one talent that you gave me. And he says, you wicked and lazy servant. So you were worried that I was a harsh master. If you would have loved me, at least you would have put it in the bank and gained a little bit of interest. Who's greater, the guy that brought back 10 talents or the guy that brought back four talents? It's a 100% increase. The measure of greatness is not the net result of where you end up on the podium. The measure of greatness is how you displayed the person and the glory of Christ in the process. And yet, my four friends and I are still like, yeah, but I still want to be, I want to be on the top. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that, provided that when the dust is settled and the awards are handed out and you receive the crown that God has given you, uh, determined by the Father, that you give him the glory back and you're content with what God has given you. It's okay to want to be great. It's okay to strive for excellence. The Apostle Paul says this, don't you know that in a race, all the runners run? You know this, right? But only one actually gets the prize. So run in such a way that you receive the prize. He goes, they do it, those athletes, they do it to get a, a, a crown that perishes and they, they exert strict discipline so that they can, they can win a crown that's going to perish. But we, we do it a crown. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. So therefore, I discipline my body. I make it my slave. And I put all things under my control so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified. Paul wants to be great for Jesus. And he's saying, listen, take a look at those guys that are trying to win Olympic gold medals. Live your life in such a way that you do the same for Christ. What has God gifted you at? Teaching? Preaching? Gifts of mercy? Generosity? What are you good at? The Apostle Paul says, do everything with all of your might for the glory of God so that Christ might be praised, that he might be worshipped. If you're a butcher, be the best butcher in the business. If you're a baker, be the best baker in the business. If you're a candlestick maker, butcher, baker, can't, you get the idea? Digger Phelps, famous basketball coach, said, you know what, if you're going to be a bum, be the best bum on the bench. I'm not sure what that means, but it stuck with me. It's kind of a Yogi Berra-ism, right? Yeah, greatness is good. Greatness is good. But where we end up in the end is not as important as 
the character which is developed in us as we strive for excellence, as we strive for greatness. I'm pretty sure. Okay. All right, good. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why? Because their position at the right and left means that the others can't be at the right and the left. It's a zero-sum game. There's only so many spots, and that's how they're viewing life. I know we've talked about this, the zero-sum game. That's how they view it, and so they're ticked off. Jesus calls them and says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the same lesson he gave them just weeks before. Okay, back to the lesson on greatness. It's okay for you guys to want to be great, but you're looking at this all wrong. You think to be great, you have to be at my right and my left, which means other people can't be at my right and my left. You're looking at this as a matter of status. You're looking at this as a matter of how people will see me and perceive me. And that's how you're viewing greatness. You're thinking that for you to be great, you have to sit at a higher place of authority so that you're over more people and better than all those people. And you can tell them what to do. That's not what it means to be great. What means to be great is to become the least of these and the servant of all. What it means to be great is to have your heart transformed that you see people the way that I see them as individuals made in the image of God who I've been given gifts to so that I can minister to them so I can build them up so that I can bring them before God and offer them. And when you understand that, you'll start living your life with excellence, with passion so that you can see Christ formed in other people. And that's what it means to be great. And all of you except John are going to lose your life in that process. You're going to drink that cup. You're going to be baptized with that baptism. And you're going to burn bright and you're going to bring me glory. Because you're going to learn this lesson and you're going to give your life in service to others. And people will name their children after you. But nobody names their kid Nero. Nobody names their kid Caiaphas and nobody names their kid Pilate. But Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Matthew, you're going to be great because you're going to make my name famous. That's greatness. And that is a good, good thing. Yeah, that guy. We'll get to him in a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Here we go. There we go. All right. So what do you want Jesus to do for you? Okay, a couple questions here. What do you want? I mean, I think this through. You got to want something. You got to want something. What? You know, the song, all you want, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. That's a, that's a want. The little kid loses teeth. I want my, I'd like two teeth. Ask Jesus. 
What do you want? Do you want physical healing? Ask Jesus. What do you want? Do you want your marriage restored? Your relationships that are broken restored? Ask Jesus. What do you want? Do you want an an NCAA title? Ask Jesus. Do you want to be the best at what you do? Ask Jesus. Ask. See, that's what a relationship is. It's about encountering Jesus and living with him and living life with him and inviting him into every aspect of your life. And then prepare to listen to the question from Jesus. Why, why do you want that? Let him show you what's in your heart. Let him show you that not all your motives are pure. Let him examine you and let him show you what's in there that you need to confess and repent of. One of my favorite books, highly recommended. If you've never read it, you need to read it. It's, it's by Roy Hessen. It's called Calvary Road. It's about personal revival. We have dozens of copies. And in his biography called My Calvary Road, he says that he was always praying for revival, but the Lord revealed to him the dirty little secret, which wasn't really a secret. The, little, the dirty little tidbit was that, Roy, you know, whenever you ask me for revival, it's always you in the center of the revival preaching. And he was like, oh, so he understood that his prayer for revival was actually more about elevating Roy Hessen as an evangelist than it was about seeing Christ glorified. And he was devastated by that. He's like, oh my goodness, my motives have been all wrong this whole time. And so he got a letter from somebody in London. He was a missionary in East Africa that wanted him to come up and preach a series of revival meetings. This is in the 1950s in England. And so he wrote the guy back. He says, oh, dear, such and such, thank you for the invitation. But alas, God has revealed that my motives for preaching the gospel are not pure. It's all about me, blah, blah, blah. So I I respectfully decline. And Roy said that this man was older and was wiser. And so he sent back a letter and he says, dear Mr. Hessen, I thank you that your heart is so tender towards God and you want your motives to be pure. But if you wait for your motives to be entirely pure to preach the gospel, you'll never preach. So confess your sin to the Lord and come to England and preach the gospel. And he did. But you can't do that unless you have a relationship with God and you're bringing all your requests to him and you're letting him tell you what's in your heart. So will you ask? And then if you get it, what are you going to do if you get it? Is is the glory going to go to God? And then what if you don't get it? What if at the end of the day, you're neither at the right or the left, but you're four rows down? What if you want to be on top and you don't even place? What then? In the end, if you've done it with a right heart and a right motive, the definition of greatness is that you are being made like Christ. won't have it on the PowerPoint for this service, but we will for the next. Jesus asked a very important question, and that is this. Can you drink the cup? Can you drink the cup? None of us can drink the cup that Jesus drank for us. In Matthew, as the uh, ushers come forward to distribute communion... As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given it, 
Thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of its fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus asks Peter and James, or James and John, rather, if they can drink the cup. And their response is yes. He's like, you don't have a clue, but you will. And as we look back to what Christ did in the giving of his blood, today, this morning, we will drink the cup and we will eat the bread. Because in doing so, we are reminded of the great sacrifice which Jesus made for us. That we might be formed in his image. That we might live a life of sacrifice and greatness so that he would receive glory. So take the elements and as uh, the praise team uh, sings, meditate on the greatness of Christ and what he has done for you. And then I'll come back and we'll take communion together. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave thanks and said, take and eat. This is my body. Father, we thank you for giving your son. We thank you that his life was fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. And we thank you uh, as we eat this bread and we give you thanks for the fact that his righteousness is now ours in Christ. So we receive this bread with grateful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. And he took the cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, you will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus offering his life's blood for us. And then when he took that cup and he gave it to his disciples, thank you that that cup symbolized the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus' greatness was displayed and that while being God, he did not consider God quality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself of his glory and he took the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death. Thank you for that shed blood. Lord, thank you for the greatness of Christ. And we receive this cup with great thanksgiving for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Every heart here is burdened with something different. Every heart here aspires for something and desires something. I pray that you would give each and every one of us courage to approach you, to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we can ask for whatever we wish and to invite you into the process of living our lives so that you might evaluate our wants, evaluate our desires. And Lord, give us courage to drink the cup to be baptized with the baptism that you have for us. Lord, each and every person here will suffer. I pray that you would use that for your glory and that you would form greatness in each and every one of us. That that greatness, which is the life of Christ lived through us, would be manifest, that it would be visible to our friends, to our family. And that you would teach us to become the kind of people who love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You, our neighbors, and even our enemies. That's what true greatness is, Lord. So help us to become that so that Christ might be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.